Well, I, I, am, I am particularly excited about the chance to talk with you today on the passage of scripture that we're going to be looking at because this is Worldwide Communion Sunday. And that is a really significant day. This is probably the day in the year when more Christians around the globe are gathering at tables of various shapes and sizes in all kinds of different environments to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. And and the text we're gonna look at today from Exodus chapter 12 and 13 could not be a more perfect text for, for that setting. If you're just joining us today, we are in a series of explorations of the amazing book of Exodus in the Old Testament. We've called this series Wild because it's a wild story that involves a wild God that meets us in the wildness of our lives. And if you're just joining us at this particular point, let me just catch you up, accept the context if I may, so that it will mean even more as we go further in this next uh, episodes. For more than 400 years now, the children of Israel have been on a slide. They have, they have been going from, from good to less good to bad to worse to awful. Once upon a time, they had been the most favored people in Egyptian society. They were the, the family members of Joseph, the great patriarch, the, uh, the head of, of commerce and in the economy in Egypt during a time of famine. They were very well regarded and influential, but over a period of hundreds and hundreds of years, they've been going down the ladder of significance and status, and they are now below the bottom rung. They are the slave labor of Egypt now. And their their masters are loading upon them more work than they can can actually accomplish. Unrealistic expectations, uh, not enough resources to meet the quotas that they've been given. It's an incredibly difficult life that the children of Israel are now living. And and along the way, they're also um, challenging the Israelites Uh, to put their faith, their hope, their security in all of these pagan uh, gods or godlets, idols, uh, health, wealth, sex, prosperity, uh, fertility, go down the list, um, that that are pulling the Jewish people away from their origins, from their original belief system. And because of all of this pressure, it's getting harder and harder for the children of Israel to remember who they are to remember that they're actually kids of a famous family and heirs of a fabulous promise. And and they're, they're growing more discouraged because they're losing a sense of their identity, their belonging, their purpose, and therefore their hope. Those are the things all of us need at any time in history. We need a really clear sense of our identity. We need to know with whom we belong we need a purpose that we share together, and this, this gives us great hope. And so I just want to observe that, that even though we're reading a story that comes from thousands of years ago, this is a very current story. Because in every single generation, uh, the people of God are in danger of becoming enslaved and, and uh, confused by some Egypt. We're living in an Egypt, powerful worldviews. Uh, many, many, many idols, 
all kinds of pressures and work and stuff that just tear away at our sense of identity, belonging, purpose, and, and, and hope. Which is one of the reasons why, frankly, it's just a great thing that we're here together today. Whether you're online or you're here in person, we need this communion. We need to be in these kinds of conversations where we remember who we are and, and, and maybe even cultivate a fresh sense of who we are and most importantly, whose we are. And so I'm just so glad that you are here today in that conversation. Um, what's been going on with the Israelites is not unknown to God. And one of the good elements or the kind of encouraging elements of this story is that God has seen all that's happening to them and he's not impassive about that. He actually is feeling this with great compassion and concern and, is, and he's inflamed actually by the current circumstances the Israelites are going through and he has resolved that he's going to do something about it. And that's been part of the story we've been studying thus far. He selects a, a man named Moses. And as we've looked over the past weeks, we've seen all of these amazing life experiences that Moses has that are used by God to prepare him for a very special role in history. And I would just say a quick sidebar, that's also helpful information for you and me. Because Moses has all kinds of experiences he, 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 he feels are probably irrelevant or probably signs that he's, that he's a failure or probably an indication that there's chaos ruling his world when in actuality every one of these experiences is actually going someplace, preparing him. And I want to encourage you to dare to believe that to be true of you. You know, not all the good experiences we have are good but there's nothing that happens to us if we, don't turn it, if we will turn it over to God that he can't somehow still weave together and make part of his wonderful redemptive purposes for us and for the people around us. And so God has raised up Moses and he's brought alongside of him his brother Aaron, who's a better public speaker, and he sent them to Egypt. He sent them to talk to the king of Egypt, the most powerful leader in the world, a man named Pharaoh, and to say to him on behalf of God, let my people go. Let my people go from out under the heel of this oppression. And Pharaoh just laughs. He laughs at Moses. He, he has no regard for Moses. He has no regard for Moses, his Lord, because Pharaoh is Lord. This is a very similar story to the one in the New Testament where Herod is the king of the Jews. Right? And, uh, and he, so he doesn't take Moses seriously at all. He is the center. Pharaoh is the center of all things. If he has any kind of a spirituality, it's, it's to serve all of these various idols that prop up his regime and, and give him a sense that he's doing something spiritual. But Pharaoh is his own God, and he's holding hard to that throne. And so when Moses comes in, it's a little bit like some guy shows up from the tiny uh, island nation of Guam in Washington, D.C., and, and he, he somehow gets into the White House and he goes up to the President of the United States and he says, my Lord is very upset about the suffering of some of the people in this, in this country and so I want you to completely reorganize your economy to help them. Well, we know how that goes, how that kind of thinking goes. 
And, and Pharaoh just blows him off, says, forget it. Now, I, I think this is really helpful part of the story too, because we have this tendency when we read these stories is we quickly separate people into good guys and bad guys, and, we're the, and we associate ourselves on the good guy side. But I think it's helpful to think about how, in what way, maybe we are actually Pharaoh in this story. How and in what ways do we also like sort of being the center of all things? Uh, how resistant we are to changes in our world that would disrupt our our arrangements, even if they would actually help other people significantly, and, and how prone we are to following and putting our hope in all these, these different kinds of idols or gods. Um, God, really, God really wants to change the heart of Pharaoh, not just for the sake of the Israelites, but for the sake of Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. So he starts moving to, to get their attention. He, they wouldn't listen to Moses and to Joshua. So, so he starts to send them these plagues, these calamities, one at a time, uh, to try and wake them up. And as Charlie and, and Mark uh, did a great job of explaining last week, I hope you'll go back and watch their messages if you didn't, uh, each one of the plagues is designed to show that he, God is more powerful than any one of the particular godlets, the pagan gods that were being worshipped all around Egypt at this time. He shows that I'm, I'm actually the one in control. I'm actually the Lord over everything. It's not these little deities that you're, that you're turning to. God is the Lord. Now, I wish in my own life experience and that of the people I know and care about, I wish that it was easy to get our attention. I wish it was easy for God to get our attention. It is my experience that sometimes God gets people's attention through blessing them richly and they go, wow, I've been so graced. I didn't deserve any of this. Unmerited favor, like Dave was saying. And, And they turn their hearts more to him and they say, Lord, Lead my life. You be the center. You deserve that place. Uh, Some people are like that. More often than not, it takes a shaking up of of our peace and our arrangements. It takes a calamity, a plague of some kind to get our attention. It takes losing our job, losing our marriage, uh, uh, losing our place in in the world in some way, losing our health. And suddenly we become a little bit more vulnerable and a little bit more malleable, changeable. We're, we're, We're subject now to recognizing that we're dependent creatures and we need God and his grace. And so we will give him a place more towards the center of our lives. Have you ever been there? Has that ever been through a season like that? And then the calamity passes. And it gets better, what happens? We sort of go back to the old way so often. And we're, you know, we're happy. It's like the story of the guy who's up working on a roof, a high roof on a barn, and he slips and he starts sliding down the steep roof and he cries out, he's, a, he's not a believer, but he cries out, God save me! And at the last second, his belt buckle catches on a nail at the very bottom of the roof before he plunges to his death. And he pulls himself together and gets back up and he says, never mind, I took care of it. You know, how, how often are we like that? Well, Pharaoh is like that. 
because each one of these plagues sort of momentarily turns him. He loosens his grip on the throne a little bit. He becomes a little bit more vulnerable and, and changeable and, uh, for just a moment. And then God relents, and Pharaoh goes right back, and the Egyptians go right back to holding on to the arrangements they have. Um, and it, and it, just, it just goes on like this, plague after plague after plague. Um, let's just pray that in order to get our full attention and to make us fully responsive to him, God never has to send to you and to me anything approaching the 10th plague, the last plague that we read about in, in this part of Exodus. You can read it, Exodus chapter 12 and 13 to finally free his people Israel and, and, and to liberate even Pharaoh and the Egyptians from their worldview and their idolatries, God sends a calamity so devastating, so awful, that I can never read about it and not be shaken by the thought of it. Um, and it is, it, it's something so difficult that it finally produces the change God is looking for, at least momentarily. Um, before we talk about the specific facts of that, I, I wanted to shift gears for a second and ask you, have you ever heard the expression, freedom isn't free? Yeah, so a lot of us have heard that expression, freedom isn't free. I, I was reminded of this in a very um, simple way this week when I opened up my email inbox and I saw this advertisement. It was for the Chase Freedom Unlimited card. <laughs> really? Unlimited freedom, I thought? Really? I'm interested. You know, and, and I can apply now. And, 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 it's, and it looks like this is an amazing deal because there are no annual fees. And I will earn $200. You've got my attention, Chase. So I started to look even closer at the advertisement and I started to read the fine print and I clicked on some of the links. And then I sort of got this bigger picture because I found that I could apply now, in fact, but I would need to fill out this really long form in which I gave away all kinds of personal information to somebody out there in cyberspace. And I thought, I'm not sure I'm ready to do that. And then I discovered that while there truly is no annual fee, my Freedom Card does carry fees for balance transfers, fees for cash advances, fees for late payments, fees for return payments. And I learned that after an initial period of Freedom Unlimited, I will pay nearly 30% interest on my unpaid charges. And that $200, the, free, the $200 that I can earn, I get after I spend $500 I might not have been intending to spend. Freedom isn't free in that full sense. Now, if you work for Chase Bank, my apologies. <laughs> because this might actually be a good deal. Seriously. I mean, when you consider all the benefits, that maybe are being offered, maybe it's worth paying those prices. Maybe it's worth it. And, and, and I started thinking to myself, you know, it works like this in a whole lot of different areas of life. You know, there's a price to be paid for freedom. 
I, I think, you know, you probably know those people who are perfectly free to wear really skimpy clothing during the summertime that exposes their midriff. I've seen people with just complete freedom for that. But I'm guessing they paid a price for that in Pilates classes, planks, crunches, you know. They bought the ab miracle thing on TV, I don't know. There was a price to be paid for the freedom to look like that and to go around like that. Uh, I've been watching the Ryder Cup this weekend. Some of you are at home right now because you wanted to see that on the side as you're watching our worship service. I get it, I like to watch that too. Have you, have you ever seen how, how freely those golfers swing a golf club? I mean, it is such fluidity and power in that stroke that these people do. I mean, it's amazing. I thought to myself as I was watching yesterday, what a gift those guys have. And then I got really thinking about it. You know, it is probably partly athletic gift, but they also put in 10,000 hours more than I have. They paid a price for that freedom to live that way, to act and perform that way. We often say on Memorial Day or on 4th of July weekend, freedom isn't free. Somebody paid a price for the freedoms we enjoy in this country. And, and, and ultimately, if you think about it, the larger the freedom, the larger the price. Or conversely, the bigger the bondage from which you're trying to get free, the bigger the price that has to be paid to free somebody from it. And this is a really important principle of life. This isn't just um, an American saying or a Dan Meyer saying. This is like reality. This is the way reality works. We will never get the way that life truly works, and it's important that we be in teaching our kids about this, our grandkids about this, that life works this way. We'll never get the way life works or what happens next in the book of Exodus or understand the even more magnificent event to which this story is actually pointing us if we don't take in freedom isn't free. Somebody has to pay a price. Exodus 12 begins with these words, and I'll tell you, I'd never noticed these words before. I'd read this passage so many different times. I'd never caught these words before. So I want to call them out for you. I think they're fascinating. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, okay, they've, they've left behind the Midian Desert in Arabia, and they've been sent down to Egypt, and they're, and they're talking to Pharaoh. And now God says to them, this month is to be for you the first month, and then for emphasis, the first month of your year. This month is to be the first month. The first month of, of your year. What's this about? Well, what God is saying effectively here is, I am about to say and do something that is so big, it reorders time. You are going to start a new calendar from this moment on. You're going to measure everything from this point on against what I'm about to do. And then God goes on to give the instructions that will become what we now know as the Passover. 
Raise your hand if you've heard of the Passover. Okay. Exodus 12 um, goes on to describe the Passover. He basically, God says, I want you to go out and select a young male lamb or goat, if you can't find or afford a lamb, and it must be one without defect. In other words, I want you to go out and, and find an animal that is pure, as blemishless as possible, that represents goodness and excellence and beauty in some way. I want you to take that animal and sacrifice the animal to me. And then I want you to take the blood of that creature and, and paint the top and the side frames of the front door of your house. Three, three blood marks on the house. And God goes on and says, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and I will strike down every firstborn of both people and animals and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I will demonstrate their powerlessness and how foolish it is to be following them. For I am the Lord. This is one of the most recurrent phrases. Charlie mentioned it last week. It happens lots of places in Exodus. God just keeps saying, I am the Lord. And then he says, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where the word Passover comes from. I will pass over you. By these three stripes of blood, you will make the message clear that the people of this house live under the blood of the lamb. They have made a sacrifice to atone for their sins. They've brought the best they can to atone for their sins. And I, the Lord, will spare them when just as Pharaoh once ordered the death of all the male children of, of Israel... I will now exact that same punishment on the creatures of Egypt. Now, you may not remember this, but that, that's what happened. An earlier pharaoh says, kill all the boys. When they're born, uh, kill them. We're getting rid of these, this troublesome people. Um, and, and, and there was wailing and agony in the households of Israel. God could have immediately turned around and just destroyed Egypt, obliterated the nation. Another Sodom and Gomorrah, another ark. He could have done it. But he's so patient, God is. And, and instead, God blesses Egypt. And Egypt goes on to become uh, this amazingly powerful nation. And then, and then God could have just sent immediately this plague, but he sends nine other plagues first, lower level of, of liability and challenge, just hoping at each moment that finally Pharaoh and Egypt would turn around, that he wouldn't have to do the worst thing. But then finally God exacts the same punishment on Egypt that Egypt had on Israel. I tried to give you grace, now I'm gonna give you justice. Some of you know way too dearly there's no pain anywhere close to losing a child. It's the biggest possible sacrifice. 
So it's not really surprising, I guess, that when the angel of the Lord passed over Egypt and took the life of every firstborn not living under the blood of the lamb, it made an everlasting imprint on the Jewish people when they saw it. And it finally shook Pharaoh off the throne for a moment. And the Bible says that during the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. He didn't wait another moment. Brought these guys back in, the ones that he had thrown out. And he said, up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go, go, worship the Lord as you've requested. And then in Exodus 12, God says this. This is a day you are to commemorate. This is where the calendar begins. This is the day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, as a lasting ordinance. And for centuries after this cataclysmic event in Egypt, the Jews fulfilled this order, whether wandering through the wilderness, whether settled in the promised land, whether off in exile in Babylon or Assyria, the Jews would gather annually together around some table in some place and tell this story and remember how God saved and freed his people through the sacrifice of a precious lamb and of Egypt's sons. It was a sacrament that reinforced their sense of identity, of belonging to a particular people, of having a purpose, a mission in the world, and it gave them hope no matter what season of life they were in, wherever they were on the planet. The Passover was the great constant. It was the stake in the ground for them. And I said they did this for centuries. They did this for millennia. They're still doing it. Even non-religious Jews are still doing this thing. I was a college uh, uh, freshman, and my roommate, Ira Wolmer, great guy from New Jersey, invited me to his, his house, and we went, and I celebrated the Passover with his Jewish family for the, my, my very first experience of it. And I was just a, um, I was just a brand-new Christian, and, and I heard them tell the story that I've just told you. And, 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 I, and I thought to myself, I, I suddenly had this awakening, and I realized, oh, the story, the lamb, the son, the, the broken bread, the cup of redemption in the Passover celebration, it's not just a sign of God's presence with Israel. It's a pointer. It's a pointer to something else. Why? Why did God do this? Why the blood of the lambs? Why the blood of the firstborn? It was in part 
to point all of human history towards a hillside outside of Jerusalem where a lamb without defect, a beloved son, would be sacrificed. This time, however, God would not be giving human beings what they deserved. He would be taking on the punishment, the cost, the price of justice. He'd take it on to himself. He'd become the sacrificial lamb himself. Why, why did he do this? Why? Why the cross? Why was it necessary? Because... The price required to free human beings from bondage to sin and death was so large that no ordinary lamb, no merely human son, not even millions of them could be enough to balance the scales of justice, to pay for it. No, God would have to do that himself. But the sacrifice that he made on the cross was so big, so gigantic, that it was able to free not just one people in time, but to make it possible for all people, anyone, to be freed who put their trust in the blood of the Lamb. The brilliant Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard once observed that the chief problem of humanity is that we have forgotten with what a great love we have been loved. Think about this. Think how much of our lives are ruled by our insecurity, our anxiety, our fear, our sense that we're not worthy, that maybe we won't be loved if we don't perform a certain way. The chief problem with humanity, says Kierkegaard, is we have forgotten with what a great love. We've been loved. But if we could remember God's love, if we could make that the true center of our lives, it would fill us with a sense of identity and belonging and purpose that would be stronger than any adversity, any adversary. It would overcome even the draw of, and the, the threat of sin and death in our lives. If he, the Lord, was our center, the Lord of this amazing love was our center. So as we come to the communion table today, and we're about to do that, let me invite you let me invite you to think really deeply for yourself about how great a price God was willing to pay to set you free from sin and death, from its penalty. Let me invite you to consider with what a great love you have been loved and are loved. And then strengthened by that, that love, Walk out of Egypt. Walk out of your version of Egypt. Start the journey. Turn your back on what's been holding you. 
the addiction, the anger, the guilt. Walk away from it and start on the road. Start on the road towards the new life, towards the promised land. And, and, and even better, if you know somebody else that's caught up in bondage, some idol, some worldview, some past deed, some roiling inner thing, if you know somebody like that, invite them to go with you on the journey. Say, come on, let's do this together. Let's leave this behind. Let's find God's best. And encourage them on the road, because I'll tell you something, the road out of Egypt to the promised land, as we're going to discover, it's a long road. You need good companions on it. That's why we invite you to be part of groups and things around our church. You need companions. And then let the massive sacrifice that Christ made for you on the cross inspire you. Let the reality that you will never have to do what he did. You you will never have to pay the price for your sins, much less others, the full price. Let the fact of what he did for you on the cross inspire you to make the smaller sacrifices which it would be good for you to make to communicate a great love for somebody in your family, for somebody that that needs to know they're seen, for an enemy. Pay some price. Be willing to pay some price inspired by the one who paid the great price in order to help somebody else find greater freedom and an experience of love. And then know that wherever you walk in the days ahead, God's going with you. God's ahead of you. Listen to how the chapter ends, and we'll close here. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. And we'll meet on the shore of that sea next week. Come on back. Story goes on. And by day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel, so they could keep making progress So they could get closer and closer to the fulfillment of all he wanted for them. Whether they were living in the sunshine of the day or the cold dark of the night, he'd be their way. Please pray with me. God, thank you that you are that light. You are that way, that guide. And we thank and praise you, Lord, for the blood of the Lamb, for the price you paid to purchase our freedom, for all of the possibilities of a new and more beautiful life ahead. If there are any of us who've never before truly opened our hearts to you and accepted the gift of forgiveness, of total freedom from the sins of our past or a fear of death as our future. If we've never done that, God, Lord, we do that today. Come in, be our center. 
Be our Savior. Be our Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.